Ready. Thank you all for listening to West Virginia and Commonplace. Today, I have a very, very special guest with me. I have someone that is, I hate to say this, but they're prolific. Prolific is a word that you don't use often, but the man I have with me, his name is John Callis. John Callis has been all around the film industry, and he's an author, and he has numerous facets to him that are intriguing. So I'm going to pass it over to John to introduce himself, and then we're going to give him the most famous question that any Q&A podcast will ask. Who is John Callis? But before that, John Callis, please tell us who you, your name, obviously I said it, and uh, a little bit about yourself, and then go in depth to you about who the person is. Well, um, thank you. Uh, My name is John Callis. I've had a very wonderful career in the film business for the last 40 plus years. Uh, Emmy nominated. I've done some iconic work that uh, people have recognized, like you mentioned Bobby's World, uh, the TriStar logo. Um, I live in Santa Monica with my wife of 30 years. We've been married 30 years and have two wonderful kids. And I guess the person who I am is somebody who started out with an incredibly difficult trauma by losing his father 10 days after his third birthday in um, basically a very economically, socially deprived area. And I just went into a tailspin of abandonment, anxiety, uh, fear. I hated the world. The world hated me. And that carried me through to uh, acting out to the point where they had to send me to a military school to try to put some sense into my head. And it got really bad there too. So I went into deeper depression that you could ever imagine. And I know you're going to talk about Colorado in a little bit, but um, there were things that I was very fortunate to be exposed to and have that helped me to uh, resolve the issues I had and move on to becoming a very successful person in life. Okay. And uh, when you say success, there's no way to measure your success. Like if I could live your life for just I don't know. I just need to live it for five years and see everything you've seen. That that would be amazing to me. So, audience, um, the one thing that we do in the show, we do we talk about mental health awareness, uh, empowerment, and different things like that. So, John, before I get into my question, I want to ask you this: When did you come to a point of pivot? When did you come to the point where you decided that hey, things have to change? It was uh, a vivid memory. Um, I was standing on the edge of a dock uh, in private school. Uh, they had sent me there because of more issues I was having. And it was a partially frozen lake. And I decided uh, I didn't want to hear any more of the, the pain that I was suffering. So I chose to commit suicide and I jumped in the lake and uh, the water rushed into my lungs. I knew I was dying and something just triggered me. And I just jumped out of the lake and sat on the edge of the dock, freezing my butt off because it was cold, obviously. And at that moment, I started having some epiphany saying, there's got to be something better than this. It can't be as bad as I think it is. And uh, I think that was one of the most monumental moments. All right. And the one thing I like about that is you're, that was a gem inside this episode. I want to make sure that's one of the clips in it for the simple fact that this generation doesn't know about true self-care. What happened to you in that instance, that was true self-care. You were, you had enough awareness after the water went into your lungs that you were somebody that's important, that you mattered. And that's something that I don't care if you have a psychologist, psychiatrist, whatever. They can't put that in you. Only you can put that in yourself. So to me, I want to give you kudos. On that. That, that's amazing that you did that and brought yourself back to the world. And the world got a different John. So with this new John that you've become, well, or maybe the real John, 
we won't say a new one, the real John, um, what was the first steps in becoming the new John or the real John? Well, one of the first steps is um, a coach came up to me and said, how come you're not playing soccer or any sports? And I said, I I just don't do that. And he sat with me because he knew something was not right with the comment. And um, he pulled it out of me about the fact I grew up without a dad. Um, I had nobody to play ball with. I used to lie to friends and say, you know, I'm going to the ballpark on Saturday with my dad. And of course I wasn't. And he said, why don't you come try out for soccer? I, I think you'll really enjoy it. And so being a mentor in a sense, he got me so involved in the sport that I became co-captain after three years. And um, I went into wrestling where I became undefeated in the tri-state area. Um, I played ice hockey, which the coach <laughs> said to everybody when I was a senior, he said, watch Callis play. There are two things that could come by him, the puck and the man. I've never seen both get by him. And it's brutal. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I found an outlet for a lot of my anger in sports because on the field, you're allowed to be aggressive. And uh, that's where I started uh, some mentorship. So to answer your question in short order, I became aware that I needed help. And I finally was going to accept getting help because I didn't know how to, but that was a first step. All right. And that's amazing that you did that because sports, you know, they work so amazing and especially uh, two sports, wrestling and soccer. Like you said, um, I did both of those in, in wrestling wholeheartedly to me that's something that's just you but it's still a team sport because you got to get the points or pin the person so that your team wins overall so it's individual and it's as a group so that to me that was the pivotal sport for me and um so you go through sports um it's a point you go to college and uh tell us a little bit about college and uh where'd you end up in college well I started college at Dean College in Massachusetts and I was standing there the first day thinking okay I can hit the reset button and be anyone I want. That lasted about four hours and I was right back down the rabbit hole, depressed and scared. And it just wasn't working again. And um, I had to really push myself hard not to uh, fall apart. And so when I checked in, they told me I had my roommate and I should go up and meet him. And when I walked in, he came over, stuck his hand up and uh, introduced himself. And I told him who I was. He says, "Uh, we got two beds. Why don't you choose which one you want? Now, up until that moment in my life, I had never felt I had a choice in anything. And here's a guy that doesn't even know me giving me a choice. And without any strings, it was just like, hey, I don't care. Pick it. It's your choice. And I heard the (laughs) word choice and it just got to me. I said, well, do you mind if I have that bed? He goes, I don't care. And it was uh, as small of a move it was. It was very monumental for me that I actually had a choice. So having that power, even though it was, it's minute now, but at that point it was, it had a maximum uh, ability to to move you a little bit. So from there, they're going on, you go to college there and um, how does college change for you while you're in college? Like you, you venture off to go to Colorado to college and um, listeners uh, definitely, definitely make sure that you um, check out his book. We'll talk about that in a moment, but this is a portion out of his book that, they drawed me in. There's a lot of different things in there. There's so much in your book that you have to pick a part that you want to be your favorite because it's so much going on in your book. So what um, happened when you went to college in Colorado? Well, um, I think to understand that, I, I would like to backtrack to that okay. moment back in, in Dean. Um, I started out college as a chemistry major. 
And my chemistry teacher took me for a walk. He says, you know, you're probably my best chemistry student. You're getting A's, three-hour labs are 45 minutes, but you're not a chemist. What are you doing here? I said, what do you mean I'm not a chemist? He goes, you're not the guy with the pocket protector with the pens. It's just not you. You're an artist. So you're out. I said, what? So he threw me out of class and he said, go find yourself. You're an artist. Now, at that moment, I was devastated, but it was a gift from God or the universe, whatever you want to say. And I was sitting on the grass and my African-American friend, Liz, came up to me and said, what are you doing? And I told her and she goes, what's he crazy? I said, I don't know, Liz. Uh, She goes, well, I need some help. Can you help me? So, yeah, I love you. I'll do whatever you want. Now, I'm thinking she needs help moving a bed or a dresser. She brings me over to the theater and has me reading lines in a play. Oh. I said, Liz, come on. I'm not an actor. And then I turned to the director and said, I got to go do my homework. He goes, you can't. You're in a rehearsal. And I looked at her and I said, oh, Liz, you and I are going to have a little chat later. I mean, what do you mean a rehearsal? And he said, yeah, you're the lead in the play. So you better get your stuff together and figure it out. And oh, wow. so, yeah. So um, I just got smitten with theater. And the next year I wrote a play and it was performed parent-teacher conference. Then Kent State happened and all the schools got closed. And uh, for your viewers, Kent State was a protest area where three of our people, I call it hippies, whatever you want to call us, were killed, brutally uh, murdered because we were protesting. So I had a choice. I, I had to get an, into another school. So I went to a counselor in New York who uh, suggested this uh, school called Loretta Heights because they had a program called University Without Walls which was designed for students who knew what they wanted to do, but didn't want to sit in a classroom all day. And that, that's where the turning point in Colorado started. Okay. And then next thing you know, you're getting into film and things like that. So how initially from theater to film, how did you make that decision that film is where you wanted to go? Well, I realized that theater was a, it, it's a wonderful passion for me, but it wasn't going to get me uh, what I needed at the time, which was uh, I was, broke as a church mouse. I wanted to have a a decent life. I wanted to make some money and theater was not the place uh, for me to make money. So after um, I graduated uh, from Loretta Heights uh, University Without Walls, I went to Occidental College uh, for my master's degree in directing. And um, that started out horrible too, because I started as an actor and the other actors ostracized me because they said, well, you work professional theater in Denver. You must know everything. And I went, oh, here it goes again. Not this, please, God, not again. And I sat there and I said, listen, if I knew everything, I would not be in this class. The reason I came here is to learn just like you. So no, but it wasn't working out. So the head of the department took me in his office and said, I see what you're going through. And honestly, I think, and I've spoken to your um, documentary drama teacher that uh, I had a, a minor in film. And we both think that you should be either a director or a director of photography because you've got the eye and you've got the ability, uh, how do you feel about that? I said, what's it going to take? He says, I'm going to take over your program and you and I are going to work through it. I'm going to get you your master's degree. And so there was another mentor that out of nowhere, he decided I was worthy of his time. And uh, that's what got me into film, or moved me in that direction, I should say. Okay. And one thing that I pick up here is that people can smell the potential off you. They can see the they can see that that glass ceiling breaking, and they know exactly how to put you in position. And you obviously do the work, so it makes it easy when you see. What is it like to to um, be the type of person that you can you show the potential that you don't even see that others see? 
Uh, daunting at best. I mean, because, you know, I, I keep thinking, are, do these people have mental illness problems here that they see something in me? I mean, I'm, I'm broken. What do, you, what do you want with me? And uh, they just kept coming at me and encouraging me. So something in the immerse was telling me, I need to wake up. I need to have some self-respect, have some self-care, as you pointed out. And, uh, you know, slowly it started creeping into my bones. Okay, so you get your master's degree. What is your first production that you start out on? That's a funny story. Um, it was uh, it was a show called oh boy, it just went right out of my head. <laughs> oh boy, uh, Cannonball Express. Okay, and, and um, I was just on the set to be an observer. A friend of mine got me on the set to observe, but this uh, old guy came over to me and said, "What are you doing?" You, you follow me. So I thought I was getting thrown off my set after 15 minutes, the first set. Turned out he was um, the special effects guy and uh, did a lot of uh, stunt work for the Bell Tower back in Notre Dame and all these famous people. And he took me in his van and he started teaching me how to wrap, wrap primer cord and explosives. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I didn't know what I was doing. I said, are you out of your mind? I'm going to kill us all. He goes, nah, you can't hurt anything. And he showed me why I couldn't hurt anyone unless it was specifically triggered with a cap. And so it, he liked me. So he kept me on, on his wing for about two years. And then I started moving into different departments uh, in the industry, because when you get a job, you try to make contacts on that job to see if you can get another job. And I had to learn that very quickly. <laughs> now, you go through that. Uh, and you, Like you said, you've been in every realm of filming. And you actually started out as an actor, you know, theater to 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 tv to film or film to tv um what was the first major production you were part of in your eyes because it says here's the thing uh when i say major production and i'll make it very uh, clear uh it could be something that was small but what was the first major production that you thought that, that you were a part of well, I hate to admit this because uh, <laughs> it's not my best work, shall we say, <laughs> but I, I think it was Young Lady Chatterley because okay. I, I had a lot of responsibility in a position that I had no idea what I was doing. And instead <laughs> of trying, yeah, I mean, I was, I had no idea what it was. So instead of trying to uh, uh, BS my way through it, I pulled the crew together and said, I have no idea what I'm doing. I need your help. You got to teach me what, what I'm supposed to do so I can be good at this. And they all were like, wait, you're asking us for help? I said, yeah, I am. And so they took me through it. And anytime I was about to do something, somebody go like that and they would tell me what to do. And uh, they, they taught me really good habits. And they taught me from a filmmaker eye, not from some book or somebody just fumbling through it and, you know, messing up a set. So it, it was a good experience. Okay. And um, you go through the 70s and then you roll around to the 80s. Um, real quick, before we go any further, what is your favorite time frame of film as a whole the industry what's your type favorite time frame in film okay uh well there's several i mean i like the old classics the black and whites because they really set the uh, the bar for everything that comes after that um so you have to respect the, the the masters that came before um the lighting was quite different in black and white that it is in color the direction the storytelling was really good it wasn't you know about some robot chasing some other robot it was actual people and character development. So that to me was really good. Um, after that, I think we have to jump really around 70, 80s and 90s because again, 
filmmaking was still alive. It was still film. Not that digital is bad. It's, it's a great medium, but it was still film. There was a certain process to it. Um, stories were being read very carefully. People knew how to read the literature and pick the right scripts um, and, and make it come alive. And it was just, it was a really fun time to be alive in the film business. Okay. Now you've worked on all kinds of movies and uh, I don't like to name drop too many, but we'll go from Raging Bull, Spaceballs, to even A Few Good Men. So you've been around everywhere. What has been your 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 favorite um, major motion picture that you've been a part of? Favorite major motion picture? Uh, yes. I, I guess it's got to be Raging Bull. I mean, it's, thank you. It's... Thank the Lord. <laughs> it's a classic. Um, yeah. And it's timeless. Like just, just to have you here to talk to you right now about it. Like this is going to fill the void in so many people's lives that, you know, Raging Bull, um, what was your impression and what was your position on that set? And how did it feel going from pre-production to post-production on that? Um, we should start out with uh, that I was attached to the Los Angeles part of the film. I didn't travel to New York or anything. Okay. Um, I, I was uh, classified as a production assistant, but I worked very closely with the UPM, unit production manager of the film. So, um, uh, you know, I was still learning, but um, I got to be on the set a lot. Uh, I got to see the ins and outs. And then the executive producer said, hey, we understand you know how to schedule things really well. And I'm sitting there thinking, I have no idea where he got this from. And I said, yes. And he says, take the strip board and, and schedule out the, this couple of weeks for us that we need um, to schedule. And let's see how you do. So back then it wasn't all digital. It was these little tiny strips of uh, cardboard mm. and you had to write on them and then you had to move them and then put black lines in between to de delineate the day. And I spent endless hours and days on it and I handed it in and they called me and said, this is phenomenal. You did a great job. So, you know, they appreciated what I had done with that. Okay. And then let's lead into to my favorite thing. We move over to television real quick. Bobby's world. Bobby's World, I am 36 years old, so I was born in 1985. So at the ripe age of kindergarten to first grade, Bobby's World comes to when it was in Fox's block of television. That animation time back then was just amazing. And I'm from Virginia, so I vaguely remember, I think it came on at like 2.30, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And from the opening sequence to Howie Mandel coming on there, what was it like being a part of this and... What did you, uh, what was your production portion inside this, I mean, inside this series? And what was your experience after it was over? Okay. Um, my position was, was a director and producer of the live action sequence. So I really had nothing to do with any of the, um, the directing or producing of the, the cartoon itself. What I was specifically responsible for is a green screen with Howie in front of it, making sure his eye lines were going to certain places so the animators would know exactly where to put Bobby and all the other characters so it looked like Howie was actually talking to the character. Uh, I wound up doing 80 episodes because after the first episode, they, the producer of the whole series called me and said, uh, I don't know, you better hide. And I said, what did I do wrong? He said, no, 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 the editors want to kiss you. They just love what you did. Okay. Uh, so I said, well, thank you, I guess. And uh, so they wound up having me on for 80 episodes, uh, which we got an Emmy nomination for. Um, so I was mentioned as an Emmy nominated uh, uh, director on that series for the live action portion. Uh, working on the set with Howie, phenomenal experience. 
just phenomenal. The guy was always good to the crew. Uh, he kept the set light. Uh, he would come to an occasion and say, you know, I got a little bit of a conflict this afternoon. I got to get to this thing. Is there any way we can do something to speed this up for me? And I would re rearrange my schedule right then and there the whole day and say, Howie, I'll get you out at what time? Four o'clock. Okay. He goes, wow, if you could do that, I'd, I'd love you. And so I tell everyone, yeah, going into the two minute drill, we got to get this done. So things would be flying all over the place. And, uh, and you know, he was just great working with us, you know? And that has to be like amazing because 80 episodes of an animated show. That's ridiculous. Like, not many i mean we're not talking simpsons we're actually just talking like a box in cartoon that comes on in the afternoon it will roll over in a syndication later on in life yeah 80 episodes Whew. 80 episodes now let's get into you right now you, you switch your roles a little bit you go into the directorial position um what was your favorite movie that you directed well for different reasons i guess um there were two that uh, I enjoyed doing the most, which was The White Gorilla, which was a short, because it was a very heavy character-driven study of what happens to somebody that has delusions of grandeur, basically, uh, as a boxer and winds up killing a guy, um, spending time in jail and coming back out and having to deal with life and never quite got it. Uh, so that was pretty exciting. The other one that I wrote um, a novel for called No Solicitors. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I wrote, produced, and directed it, uh, starring Eric Roberts. Um, yes. And, you know, when I found out we, we had Eric Roberts as my lead, uh, my wife asked me and said, how do you feel about that? I was very privileged. I mean, he got two-time Golden Globe Award winner and an Academy Award uh, nominee. Uh, you can't ask for much better than that. And so the first day on the set, you know, naturally you get a little nervous with a guy of that uh, quality. He called me into his dressing room to be introduced. And he said, you want some food? I got all this food. I don't know what to do with it all. I said, no. And we talked a little bit about the film. And he said, do you have any specific ways you want to handle this character? I said, actually, Eric, I learned a long time ago with actors. I'd rather see what you want to bring to the table, because maybe if I give you a direction, it may send you down the road I might think is right. But you may come up with something as, as the actor, knowing the character far better than I will, even if I wrote it. So you might give me something that I think is better than what I got. And he smiled and looked at me and goes, that's pretty smart. So that's what we did. Each time I blocked it out, he'd come in and he would do things. I'd make some very minor adjustments. Uh, he made some suggestions in terms of how he likes to be photographed. I kept an eye on that to make sure that that worked out. Uh, made everyone very relaxed. He was not the star. He was not a diva. He was really down to earth. I enjoyed our chats over lunch because I found the guy incredibly intelligent, which I really like people like that. And we just had a lot of fun doing it. Hard work, now, but a lot of fun. Now, um, I always get people when they come on the show to give back to the audience and the fledging uh, people that want to become directors, actors, and stuff like that. So you actually had a movie optioned by a studio. No. And no? No. Full no. I, I pulled all the financing together and everything. Oh, Wow. So, so then let's let's flip it around. Then, since you see, that's a portion I didn't get because I was trying to search and see uh, on the internet uh, where I could find that out. So, you actually got your movie funded. I did. How, how hard is it to do a pitch to get your movie funded? Well, it's not hard to do a pitch. It's sometimes very difficult to identify what's going to move the needle in the pitch. What what value are you bringing to an investor? 
Um, most Nubians in film that do pitches are all about, it's going to look great. It's stuff you've never seen before. And uh, the acting is going to be great. And the story's phenomenal. All of which the investors are saying, yeah, next. Because what they want to hear is, here's how you're going to make your money back. Here's the waterfall. Here's what we plan on doing in marketing. This is what we feel we should do for the first go around to get money back into the pocket. Now you've got their attention because you're talking their language. Creativity is for you as the filmmaker or the crew or anything to have when you're on the set and you're doing it or when you're writing it or discussing it with your fellow filmmakers. When you're in front of investors, you have to think their language. Why are they investing? They're not investing for altruistic uh, reasons. They want to make money. So you got to show them the, the statistics of why it will make money. Okay. And I like that. And that's another thing. You just help somebody there, an aspiring uh, film director or just someone that has an idea and wants to go forward with it. Content creators, as they're called now. Yep. Um, so now, when the rain stops, this is your memoir. This is your yes. love song to the world. Um, first off, I got to give you a quick testimony. Um, you actually provided me with a copy of this book. And I took a very, very long time to read it, like, what, three or four weeks. Might have been a little bit longer. Um, like, I stopped at some points because, I mean, it's it's a when I say tough, I'm not saying tough like it's rough. But it's, it's a little gripping inside your book. Um, so, obviously, this was a labor of love, and this was a whole lot of self-care because you were just putting it out to the public. Um, when you were writing this, was there a point that you just had to stop and be like, man, this really happened to me or this went on and I need to stop for a little bit. I need to gather myself. I need to collect myself. That's a, you know, that's an outstanding question. The truth is, is I set out to want to write something very raw and honest. And the only way I was going to be able to do that was to relive those experiences and truly understand it, which is why I did the two voices in the book, the yes. little boy who's going through it. And then in the gray boxes, it's the adult looking back at what the little boy went through, his perception versus what the reality of the situation really was. And quite often they were far apart, which is why the traumas and all that started. Um, there were times my wife would go by the office that I'd be crying my eyes out and she would just come and hug me and say, just keep going. And it was very painful because there's stuff in it that when it came up, I, um, I, when reliving it was not an easy thing to do. Okay. And, and the thing that I like about it is, is that you like, like you said, with it being raw like that, it's something you can pick up. And this is from a reader's perspective. I'm a person that travels and I do everything in the world. And we got electronics and all that other stuff. But in my reading of this book, I would take uh, in the evening time, I'd have like 45 minutes or so, because I'm one of those people that I read and I analyze. And then I'm going to think more about it and I'm more related to me. Not everything I can relate to me. That's like what, like with anyone, but it, but the, the younger portions of life, uh, the certain type of pressure that's always been in your life, that's a theme. And the literary devices, like you said, with perspective and different things in there, you could tell that somewhere along the lines, you, you got a good understanding of the literary devices that we're, we're supposed to use. So in doing all this, you know, in writing this book, you've already got the actor director, you've got all kinds of arts underneath you. So now you got language arts underneath you. Um, what was the, the the hardest part about writing this? And, and let me twist this a little bit so we can get it a little bit harder in there. Um, what I'm asking is, is like, what point of the book 
did you really just have to shut it off like and just put it down and not go back to it for a week or two because that's the part that that made you that that's an adversity that you just you know the climax you know you get really high up in the air with that and then once you get that everything kind of plateaus and it becomes a whole lot easier to write and stuff like that so what moment inside that book did it just hit you that i gotta stop boy there was so many of them to be honest with you i mean just having to come to terms with the fact my dad was dead 10 days after my third birthday. That was a, a big trigger point because I created this whole fantasy world around him being on a mission, uh, you know, undercover and all that, which years and years later, I wrote a book called Secrets. And it was kind of based on the Nazi Germany thing and swapping out documents and all that silly stuff. But um, yeah, there were a lot of points where I just, sometimes I had to walk away. It was just too painful. And as you said, I did, I took a couple of weeks sometimes to just breathe a little bit and get back down and say, okay, uh, let's go. We get back and, into it. And one thing that me and you're related on, I lost mine a little bit later on in life. I lost my dad at the age of eight. I lost him in 1994. Sorry, um, yeah, I lost him. And like you said, that's what really dug me into this whole thing. Like I didn't build a facade for him because he already had a, he had a great function to him, but people made my dad to be so worldly and above everyone else like you know they made him mythological and even i started making mythological things about him even from eight to 12 years old you know he was bigger than life so that's who i had to be sure and and i like that that resonated with me so well that i was like man john gets me here because it'd be sometimes like wrestling meets and different things like that i don't have a dad there i got a mom that might come but the coach is coaching me on and, and everybody's cheering me on, but you know, no one knows what it's like to not have your dad there. Yeah. You it's painful. And it's something that hits a reset button on everything else in your life to me personally. And that's where we're like, we kind of related, like I'd reset, I'd refresh myself, you know, things will get bad and just like things that would get, uh, you have turmoil in your life and you fix things, you work them out. You took that vase and you, uh, corrected the cracks in it you put the glue in there you make sure it stayed together and that's something that this generation and i'm going to say this generation doesn't get uh we uh hide behind certain things and i won't go into all mental health aspects but sometimes we medicate and we do different things to alleviate but we don't actually do anything to heal it we just pacify it mm-hmm. and i want to thank you for that because anybody that reads this book will learn that you don't have to pacify it um chemical imbalances, different stuff like that. I'm not talking about that, but certain things that we can handle as a person on a normal self-care level, just as long as you have awareness, that's a key thing that you got to have awareness. As long as you can get the awareness, that is what was great about you. That's my testimony to you is that your awareness, your mental health awareness, if I could box it, put it inside of a, some type of tube and just market it and sell it to people, I would have to sell it to people because no one has that it didn't take you long in life to get it. And that's one thing I want you to always hold on to. That's just part of the testimony I want to give you right there about yourself, because like, that is crazy to me. Now going deeper into this book real quick, you finish the book, you're about to publish it. Um, what's that feeling like when, when you know that the work is done inside the book? It was like giving birth. I mean, I was uh, both pleased and now I was scared to death because when I finished it, um, and I handed it over to my editor and, and my wife to look at it as well. I panicked. I thought, oh, my God, I have just exposed my underbelly in ways that I'm not sure I'm ready for. Um, 
I wanted to make sure my mother didn't come off as this horrible human being, although I had to show from my perspective, she looked like this horrible human being only later in the book to own up and find out that she made some tough choices that saved my life, basically, and forever in love with my, my mom. But, you know, she's gone, too. But um, yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's one, it's one of those things, uh, the choices that her mom makes. Uh, and I'll tell you just a quick funny story. I was acting out and stuff like that. And uh, my mom in Virginia, we have uh, two two military academies, uh, Hargrave and we have Fishburn um, and Fort Union. We have three of them. Fort Union Hargrave, and Staten also. Yeah. Okay. So Hargrave is the one that they always, because of major pain and all that other stuff. Hargrave, they she would always, uh, she would drive us by there because I lived in the middle of Virginia. So we were nothing but an hour away. So she would take me down there sometimes. She's like, is this where you want to go? And whenever we would have wrestling meets, we would stay the night in the barracks down there. So right. you, you, you learned a little bit. So I was like, huh, I, I sometimes do wish I had got that, you know, went to military academy or something like that. But she always warned me. She said, you can end up at Hargrave and there was no major pains there. There's a lot of pain there, but, you know, discipline. Now, um, you get to the point, book's done. Uh, you're sitting around with your wife at the table, drinking whatever y'all drink, coffee, tea, whatever. And your wife's read your book and she gives you her opinion of your book. And what does she say to you? She was very proud. She was, uh, she said, it's honest, it's raw, it's painful. Um, but I think you're going to get what you want out of it, which I told her, she said to me when I she said, what exactly do you want to get out of this book? And I had to stop and think about it. I said, well, obviously I hope it helps people, but if I save one person's life because they read this book, then I'll consider it a bestseller because life is too valuable. And one person to me is just as valuable as a million people. Okay. Now you've gone through life. You wrote, wrote this book and um, you've been all over the U S and every probably around the world, quite a few different places. Uh, let's just do a quick little role play here. I like to do this with, with heavy content creators like you. Um, we're going to start off on the East coast. East coast will start off in like, what's my favorite place to go? I like to go to Connecticut, but I like New Jersey. So we'll start off with New York, New York City. There's a billboard and it says John Callis. Tell me what the rest of that billboard says. Um, veteran filmmaker writes a memoir about mental health. You too can have a successful life. Okay, so now let's go a little bit further. We'll move to the Midwest now, uh, closer to places I like to hang out. Uh, we won't use Pittsburgh. What's a good city? Columbus, Ohio, because Columbus, Ohio is a, is a good branch. Um, films come out of there and different things come out of there. Well, you're given a chance to go to Ohio State and uh, do a TED Talk about mental health and about filmmaking, because there's a lot of anguish and there's a lot of divide in between those. What's the first sentence that you tell that audience? I think you'd be very surprised to find out everyone in this audience has had a mental condition, whether you think you have or not, you have, because for example, PTSD is not specific to veterans, although many people have this misconception it is, but it's much bigger and broader. It's all about trauma and everybody doesn't get through life without having a trauma. So we need to understand that and be kind to each other. Okay. So after that, the Ted talk generates a little bit of, more notoriety. Uh, Ohio State's probably the best place to do something like that because that's the Midwest and it goes east or west. 
So you get a little further over to the west. We're going to take a stop off in St. Louis. St. Louis is, to me, that's the heart of the Midwest. Ohio might not have been the best choice. But you're over in St. Louis. You've got a chance to uh, do a little outreach. You decide that, you know, you did the TED Talk. You reached a certain demographic there, but you just want to do some community outreach. You want to um, be at one of the best barbecue spots out there in St. Louis. You're given the microphone. And um, we don't preach about philanthropy or anything like that. We, we preach about the one thing that you said earlier about the actual help that someone gets from your book. So a fan comes up to you and tells you about a certain chapter in that book. And uh, what chapter does that fan talk about? And how does that uh, intertwine and make you feel? Well, I would hope the fan would come up and say, I had an issue with my mom. And after reading your book, I went over and hugged her. And we talked and I finally saw it from her viewpoint. And now we have a great relationship. Okay. Now we make it to California. Uh, California, I've had quite a few trips out there. I like it out there. Um, Santa Monica is a nice place. Sacramento is a good place. Los Angeles is where everybody wants to be. But you're in San Bernardino. And it's hot. And uh, you've got a bunch of guests out here. It's an impromptu meeting with you and some more fans. Uh, lemonade, tea, all anything to quench your thirst is out there. Uh, you drink your lemonade and um, a fan comes up to you and tells you that, you know, your book moved them. And uh, they give you a little spiel about different chapters in your book. But then they tell you this one thing. That you stopped them from committing suicide. You stop them from hurting someone. You stop them from disrupting the flow of their life. What do you say to that person? I would go over and hug them. And I would say, well done. Welcome to the human race. You've just proved yourself as a human being. You've given something that nobody else can give you, which is self-respect and a value for your life. Now pass it on to somebody else. Okay. So you've done all this on earth and um, I take nothing away from anyone because everybody believes in some life afterlife. So I'll, I'll present it as an afterlife, the afterlife. You go through whatever gate you go through and you see your mom. What do you say to her? I just run and give her a hug. And I said, well, I'm here. You got to show me the ropes. <laughs> Cause by then I'm sure she will have had everything organized. <laughs> And right there, John Callis, you just lived a life. You've helped people. You're going to help people. You're going to continuously help them. And um, when you punch that time clock at the end of the day, you're going to go back to your mom. Y'all are going to have a good time. I hope so. And, and she's going to grab your writing and she's going to give it back to you. And she's going to just say this. Thank you for depicting me the way you did. Let's make a film about it. Nothing that's going to be on Lifetime, but I want to film a full option <laughs> up here in heaven or, or whatever you believe in. And... Uh, who did your mom look the most like? Who, did she, who looks like her? What who actress? Look, well, if she's listening, I'm not going to say it. So we're just going to walk away from that one. I don't, I, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That's an interesting. I've never thought about it, to be honest with you. Well, you, you got time to think about that. So definitely think about who you're going to get to play her. Because she's going to want somebody good. And okay. do not get Mary Tyler Moore. No. Don't need that. Don't need that. Uh, but. I want to thank you so much, John Callis, for coming on. I want to thank you one more time for going through that role play with me because the thing about that is that's something that we do on the show quite a bit because it tells how our life happens, the perception, um, the impact. Uh, 
the importance of being human, like you said, on, on certain occasions throughout that little ride we went on or that plane ride. Um, and then we, you know, finished it off in a great place. Um, what would be the thing that you would want people to take most away from your book, from your life? Like your, your mission statement, what would that be outside of everything we said in this interview? But what, what, what would they, one thing be that you would want them to take away from this and for that to be immortalized forever with your name? I guess it's recognizing that you can't do it all in one jump. You have to start with very small steps. And the first step is to recognize you have an issue and you need help. That's a big step. Uh, so you have to start finding a path that is tiny steps. If it's hard for you to get out of bed in the morning, if you can get out of bed and make your bed, you've now accomplished something for the day. So you can feel good that you made a step. Maybe the next day or so, you make your bed and you go take a shower right away as opposed to getting through the day most of the day and then splashing water on your face to go to bed. So if you build on these little steps and allow help and seek out people who will listen, not just talk to you, but will listen and get you, I think you can turn your life around just like I did. It's there for you. Grab it. And that right there was the amazing part of this episode. Once again, I want to thank you, John Callis, for coming on here. Definitely go out there, grab his book, When the Rain Stops, and grab all of his other materials. Definitely go see his movies. Uh, the greatest thing that we do on the show is called The Shameless Plug. Real quick, John, I need you to tell everybody where they can meet and greet you and find out all the illustrious stuff that's happening in your career. I have a website called johncallis.com. Uh, it's got 99% of my background on it. It has all my literature work as well as all the teaser trailers I've done. Um, and all my literature and all that. There's a contact uh, place on it. Um, I made this offer to everybody on Instagram and on Twitter and Facebook. If you're truly suffering and you need somebody to talk to, get in touch with me. We'll connect on the phone. We'll talk. We'll go through whatever it is you need help with. And hopefully I can be of some help to you. All right. And then the last thing, um, I have a group that I I do podcasts with ever so often. They are called Galaxy of Film, and they are film buffs. I need you to explain something before we get off here. What is a live-action trailer? Ah, okay. Or teaser. Okay, so the studios um, were presented this concept through uh, a company called Interlink Film Graphic Design, which is no longer in existence because the owner had passed away, and he and I became extremely close friends. And he developed a pitch that, uh, from a study saying that if you introduce an audience to a film prior to it's even being made, like six months in advance, you're going to collect all the one-time moviegoers that only go every six months or so and give them more of an awareness of what the film is about. So what we did is we would take what the script was, what the director and the production designer had in mind, and we would create um, a trailer under two minutes that represented what felt like scenes right out of the movie. So we would use... Walter Matthau, we would use uh, Jack Nicholson, we would use uh, uh, Mel Gibson, Mel Brooks, Eddie Murphy, um, all these famous people. And we would put them in scenarios and scenes that we would film and then cut together as if it was a theatrical trailer from the movie. And nine times out of 10, the movie hadn't even begun shooting. So, oh, that, went in, yeah, so that went into movie theaters and people would look at it. For example, Eddie Murphy writing on the yak for Golden Child, you know? Okay. Okay, so um, six, eight, nine months later when the film is underway and they start releasing scenes from the movie and trailers in the movie theaters and on TV, 
somebody, wife or husband, boyfriend, girlfriend, partner, whatever, says, hey, remember we saw that trailer with Eddie Murphy on the Yak? I want to see that movie. So what the studios found is that in the first weeks of opening box office, which is your most critical, by having these teasers, it increased their potential up to, up as high as 23% additional revenue. Ooh. Now that's serious money. So um, they weren't cheap to put together, but that's what a, a live theatrical teaser is. Okay. And I want to thank you for that. Cause that was one thing that galaxy film, they wanted me to ask you um, because they are, they are into the movies really tight like that. And I was like, that's crazy. Cause you know, you, you're a pioneer in that. Yeah, pretty much. Right. So once again, John Callis, I want to thank you for coming on West Virginia Uncommonplace and to the West Virginia Uncommonplace audience. Please, I will have all of John Callis's information in the show notes so you can readily find him, um, contact him. And if you're dealing with any type of grief or anything that's going on in life or anything that just isn't the oranges and apples you normally used to, contact John. He's gone through a lot and he can help you. So once again, this is JR signing off. And this has been an amazing episode with John Callis.